What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA and Pacifica Radio, I'm your host, Jesse Strauss. We spend most of our efforts on this show uncovering the brutal truths about the prison industrial complex and the grassroots struggles to reimagine safety in ways that can be hard and confusing, knowing that all along in communities that are systemically under-resourced, we keep us safe. We're going to spend this hour with an award-winning author whose latest effort imagines what the future of the prison industrial complex might look like and some of the struggles against it. Chain Gang All-Stars is the debut novel from acclaimed author Nana Kwame Ajebrenya. Thank you so much for joining us, Nana. I'm so excited to be here today. Uh, thank you for having me. Our pleasure. So I want to get right into the book, and then a little bit later we'll zoom out and talk about kind of the politics and experiences that led you to write it. Yeah. Chain Gang All-Stars imagines a future where the prison industrial complex creates a for-profit reality show following people who've been convicted of hard crimes, literally fighting and killing for their freedom. In your words, Nana, can you just give us kind of a picture and a little bit of a summary of what that looks like? Right. So in Chain Gang All-Stars, convicted wards of the state are people who have been accused of crimes can opt out of a sentence of at least 25 years and participate in these like death matches. And so they basically become these new age gladiators and uh, the sort of carrot at the end of the stick is that if they survive three years on um, on the circuit, as they call it, which is like basically three years as a link or three years as a participant in this blood sport, they are offered clemency or they're giving a chance to be freed. And the book is really about um, one, uh, two women in particular uh, who are sort of become champions in these games. I'm wondering if you can bring us in by talking a little bit about that I guess some of the crimes that some of the main characters were convicted and why those crimes are complicated. I'm particularly in terms of the complicated aspect, thinking about the uh, use of footnotes in your book, which I thought was really awesome. Yeah. So when I was going, setting out to write this book in some ways, in some ways, I think that I wrote this book to make, to find out if I truly was an abolitionist. I think I thought I was, Mm, and mm. I think I wrote it trying to discover that I truly was and i discovered i am and so they've done they've done many things some people have done arson some people have um committed thefts and gotten and and some people have done nothing as we know many people on uh, death row are later on exonerated but i also wanted to make sure that many of the people that we were looking most closely at did do the thing that uh maybe we most expect of um uh people who might take uh, this extreme step, people who are basically very feeling guilty, very guilty. There are people who commit murders. There are people who commit sexual assaults. There are people who do like the worst things I think that we think of when we think of, of the idea of causing harm. And that just felt important for me because I didn't want to pretend that those issues don't exist. I wanted to directly engage the idea of people doing harm and how prison and the carceral industrial complex in many ways uh, cuts at the knees our ability to grow a moral ethical response to that harm doing. So I'm excited to ask you more about how you figured out in the writing process that you are an abolitionist, but also just diving a little deeper. Yes, the characters in your book, those main characters did um, get convicted of crimes. They did um, 
in some cases, although not actually all, uh, harm people and and yeah. create, you know, uh, used violence um, in their own lives. You also really gave many of those characters depth um, and and humanized them. It made those people feel much more than kind of the reality show blood sport contestants that they are for viewers. It also gave the sense that their backgrounds were for us, for the reader, not for the reality show or the characters in the book who watch the reality show. Yeah. Can you talk about like how you created some of those backgrounds and why those backgrounds are important? Yeah, I think it's important to remember that everybody's a human. I think that the even the very nature of the word criminal sort of tries to make us forget that uh, and these labels we have for people who cause harm. But I was really interested in never forgetting that every person is a human. That's really non-negotiable. And I think the current prison system, prison system as it exists kind of depends on us believing that people's humanity is negotiable. Uh, I wanted to just show characters doing what I think anyone would do, which is try to preserve their happiness, try to, try to make it, excuse me, sorry. And so I really wanted uh, to present people who are competent, sometimes who fall short of their expectations of themselves and others. Also sometimes people who thrive in difficulty I want to show a myriad of type of characters and let them just be people because that's what I think it is. You know, we have human beings and we, and we also know that we have a system that is extremely unforgiving. And so I wanted characters who will understand that the system's unforgiving and are still trying despite that. So you've already provoked a lot in me. You said the current prison system depends on us believing that people's humanity is negotiable. Yes. And you also said that you wrote the book trying to figure out if you really are an abolitionist and you have in the writing process figured out that you are. I'm wondering if you can yeah. talk about that process. Yeah. And A, what does abolition, like being an abolitionist mean to you? Yeah. But also at the same time, like to pour yourself into the writing process genuinely and really ask that question. Wait, am I really an abolitionist? Right. It's a, it's really an important question. I think it's one at the center of this book. So I was in college when Trayvon Martin was murdered. I think many of us, uh, people my age were activated in that space. This is sort of the origins of like what we currently think of as the black lives matter movement in this country. And I think that time forced us to interrogate sort of the, I don't know, carceral attitudes that had existed even outside of the police, you know, and it made me think about justice. And that made me really, really question the judicial, the judicial system, the um, trial of George Zimmerman, that is. I already had some of this in my background already. My father was a defense attorney. And I remember as a very, at a very young age, him telling me that he had, was defending someone who had committed murder. And, you know, my initial response is like a sort of ignorant kid was like, well, I guess my dad's a bad guy. You know, he's a villain. Mm. And I remember, because he's helping the quote unquote bad guys. And I remember my father really, and I, I was I was pretty young at this time. I can't remember, like, you know, between 10 and 12, be like, it's not that simple. That's what he said. And somehow that stuck with me. And so fast forward to, like I said, I think as a nation and as a people, we're sort of re-examining the judicial system as we, I guess we always have, but we're looking again after uh, the Trayvon saga. And um, I felt pretty affected. 
I felt this, and and I think I started hearing the term abolition. And when I thought about it, I was like, I agree with that. You know, prisons are like seem bad, they seem unfair, but it was a very shallow appreciation. I think I think in general, sometimes words get into the popular vernacular, and it's really important for because just the word abolition unlocks possibility in people's minds. Because if you if you allow the system to go unchecked, you would think that prisons were natural, or they've always been, and they and they are not. Mm-hmm. But if you mm-hmm. if you don't interrogate you might not ever really think that way. So even just having the access to the the word abolition was important. And again, you know, there's books that came out that started, I think, again, changing the cultural conversation, maybe perhaps most fam- famously, the, um, um, the Michelle Alexander, New Jim Crow. Uh, but so I think I just, I morally felt as though I didn't believe in the way prison was happening. I started working with a group locally where I'm from called the Rockland Coalition to end the new Jim Crow. And I don't know, I just started to be like on paper, or at least I say this about myself, but I want to really know what I mean because I wanted to, not that I have to have the answers to these things, but I wanted to not have a superficial like sort of understanding or belief about this subject because it felt important, especially as I started writing um, about it. Initially, the um, Changing also was going to be a short story. And so I started doing the research and I became, not only did I realize I was an ab- abolitionist, I became like sort of mortified by the re- the violent reality of prisons. I became uh, I, like in- ashamed that I wasn't more mortified earlier. I became confused as to how a system with so little efficacy, even on its own terms, is uh, allowed to persist. I became ashamed of just sort of all of our sort of complicity through silence. And I discovered on no uncertain terms that I absolutely was a abolitionist. And I could talk about some of the specific things that turned me to it, but, you know, pretty much if you research any aspect of the carceral system, you'll pretty quickly be mortified to find only a, that is, does it not really address the issue underneath, but also it's just a total failure of compassion. Well, I do want to ask you more about the specific turning points for you around that, but I also want to bring it back mm-hmm. into the book context. Um, for our listeners just tuning in, that's the voice of award-winning author Nana Kwame Ajebrenya, whose brand new book is called Chain Gang All-Stars, and you are listening to Law and Disorder on KPFA. I'm your host, Jesse Strauss. The book has these death matches um, that are part of a reality show. So one of the things you were just talking about is not only the uh, the elements of the prison industrial complex that are actually imprisoning people, but also kind of the passive support that people give it in our society that yeah. allows it to exist. And in the book, you also follow characters who are just fans of the reality yeah. TV show. People who are not, you know, on the ground making this happen, but they're uh, actively supporting it through their time, their, their conversations. There's in particular a man and woman who are a couple where the man is obsessed with it and he's constantly, and this is my word, mansplaining the show to his partner. Yeah. Who starts out, she's kind of repulsed by the show. And then after watching it kind of for the sake of connecting with her boyfriend and having that part of his life, be integrated into her she gets invested in it 
I'm wondering, as you were writing the book, what was it like to imagine the people who are just watchers of the reality show? Who are those yeah, fans? Yeah, and, and I think that was a really great characterization you just gave. Um, the people who just watch are, in many ways, so many of us, and I include myself, people who sort of know this thing is happening, but are kind of like, eh, that's just how things are. Even as, and, and, and oh. in some ways, it's it's... There's something particularly sort of, I don't know, morally questionable about Emily is the character who you're talking about who knows this is wrong, but at first is A, indifferent, and B, even becomes a, something of, well, maybe I don't want to ruin it, but like she begins indifferent and moves on from there. And so I think that uh, we're sort of taught that... Uh, again, we're sort of taught to feel disenfranchised. And so that like, that's something that's happening over there. We have no power over it. But in many ways, we just don't talk about it at all. So it's kind of this weird, I think, game I'm kind of playing where, you know, just by, by watching and buying a ticket, to me, that's sort of the public who sort of understands that horrible injustices are happening, kind of knows that torture is happening, kind of understands that this is probably a completely, a complete failure, more ethical failure of society. But is unwilling to say or do anything about it. It it also feels worth noting that the characters who love the reality show also, as far as I could tell, don't have direct connections to people who are incarcerated. Yeah, I think it's uh that's a really great point because it would feel very hard, you know, to sustain that kind of connection, which I think is also a big part of the way the way prison works in our lived life is by this separation, this isolation. I think if we really had took the time to think about Again, the reality of what's there, because we know about it, but we think about it in sort of this abstract kind of context or that or this highly dramatized, unrealistic space. If we think about like the reality of these are humans who are suffering that are being made to suffer, uh, it gets really hard to stomach. And so I think that point you just made is um, really on point. And I guess I keep calling it a reality show, but it's also kind of the combination between a prison reality show and this epic sports game, right? It's yeah. a category of sports that your book created called Hard Action Sports, right? Yes. Can you tell us a little bit more about Hard Action Sports and the, kind of what inspired you to go in that direction? Yeah, so I think that the whole idea of this premise is that, like, we already know that there's a for-profit prisons, which is uh, sort of, to me, a ridiculous premise, but it's the book is kind of asking, well, okay, if this is all right, then why stop there? And it takes it a little bit further. And so a way they further monetize well, the enslaved existence as being a prison in America is by creating a, a, a new sport in which the stakes are extremely high because life itself is what is being risked. And so I... there's a, For me, there's a really clear analogs because, and, and I am a fan of sports, but we have this this culture where we consume and bet on mostly black and brown bodies in the sport context, whether it's the NFL or the NBA. And these players are, especially the men who participate in these sports, of course they have great privileges, excuse me, but we also know that they're often, uh, you know, victims of something as well. We know about CTE. We remember how Colin Kaepernick was sort of, uh, stifled when he tried to use the platform he had gained to say something real about the world. 
and we know about the successes of of many uh, sporting spaces because sports arenas are political arenas. Um, and the WNBA has been a great leader in many ways of showing how they could that can be done. And so this is this game is a monetization of is is a of, of prison existence of incarcerated existence. And I think I pulled a lot from the general premise that we have now. And I'm always remembered at the end of any, every NBA championship where like the kind of illusion is broken and some white man you've never seen before gets the trophy because it's <laughs> right. his trophy. It's like he owns these people. He right. owns the he owns the stadium and he owns everybody else. It's this is his. So like thank you for your money, everyone. And it's like this the illusion gets broken. I always hate that moment because again, like I said, I'm a fan of sports. I want to interrupt for one moment just to let our listeners know. I know we have a lot of listeners who don't watch sports. And so just in case people aren't familiar, at the end of like the NBA season, whoever, whatever team wins the finals, there's a big trophy ceremony. And the first person who accepts the trophy and speaks is always the people who own the teams. It's not the teams themselves. And it's always some old white man. 90% always. of the time. <laughs> 95, <laughs> let's say. It's a billionaire, right? Because you have to be a billionaire to Absolutely. own the team. It's always some billionaire guy. <laughs> Maybe it's Jamie Buss or a billionaire woman, I guess. It's a ridiculous thing to watch. And I, I did interrupt you, though. I, I want to make sure that you were able to finish your point. No, no. That was really the end of the point is that it, there's a lot of analogs for a bunch of rich people, basically, who get to decide the destinies of not only people, but of communities. Because when they build the stadiums, we know how spaces are gentrified and housing is torn down. Basically, these billionaire people get to decide the destinies of so many of us through the avenue of entertainment sports. And, you know, you very much touched on the next question that I was going to ask, which is just about like one of the dynamics of most professional sports is that it's about watching mostly black men compete. And every once in a while, emotions go overboard and land in physical altercations and fighting on the court or on the field. As much as that's not the purpose of those sports, it's also exciting for fans, and maybe in some way it's a purpose of sports media. The media always has a field day with it. I mean, I'm a Warriors fan, and when I watch Draymond Green step on or maybe stomp on his opponent, it really builds the tension, right? Yeah. The media loves it, and to be honest, the tension is fun to watch. It's a part of the experience for me, too. I always feel complicated about it. It's, it's funny because... We're all interested in, on some level, in like who's going to win this. What are the outcomes? It's, it's high drama. It's high human drama. But what I think is interesting as well, and I always think about this, is how there is a media field day when there's fighting in two in, in basketball and football. But you know, there's not in hockey, and mm, mm -hmm. it's a part of the game, and no one cares. It's just a thing because, and I mean, I have so many ideas about because of who primarily participates in hockey and how fighting is fine. I think about the violent outbursts of like tennis players, men usually, for example, like when they just like shatter their rackets and shatter their racket again and shatter their racket again and how <laughs> right that's just cool. And how when um, in basketball players, when they fight, it's like bring the army. We're people. So we're going to be interested in like the the, the natural drama of um, – of um, people in conflict. Well, and bringing it back to the to the book, it's also like the line of sportsmanlike conduct in hard action sports is obviously different from basketball or football or hockey or any of those sports, but also just the way that sports media plays on the drama of violence or potential violence yeah. is all about us, right? It's all about the spectator. It's really about the spectator. And I think a lot of the 
energy of the book starts with the lead characters, Third War and Stax, trying to get their teammates, so to speak, to remember that they are people and not just uh, puppets for the desires of the spectators. And that, and the way they do this is by like saying, hey, we don't have to do the thing that is the most spectacle, even though the spectacle is rewarded in many ways. We don't have to do the thing that will get the most viewers, which again, in this context is violence. We can um, be something other than that. That's the voice of award-winning author Nana Kwame Ajebrenya, whose brand new book is called Chain Gang All-Stars. And you're listening to Law and Disorder on KPFA. Nana, your book also chronicles a growing protest movement against hard action sports. The most powerful characters involved in that element of the book had super direct connections to people who were incarcerated and who had been drawn into hard action sports. Mm. Why is that the case? And did you feel that you were reflecting how organizing and movement work happen now or offering something different? Well, I think it's, it's not always the case, but often it's the case uh, that uh, those primarily affected, they have a personal stake and are also more willing to interrogate the institutions that maybe robbed them of a family member or maybe even killed a family member. Uh, like I said, I work with a, a group called the Rockland Coalition to End the New Jim Crow. And so many times I've been inspired by like the energy of our members, many of whom who have had family members incarcerated or have been previously incarcerated themselves. And so I think that um, it's just the way the people who are who who have access to these ideas are, are more informed because it's your own life. That's so often uh, the way it goes. And and from there, you know, maybe we could take leadership um, as it as it moves through the sort of um, the space and other people get involved. But I think it's often the case that those who have been directly affected um, feel engaged and energized initially or earliest. So you also tell a story that I thought was brilliant in the book about the technology of tools that are used to inflict pain on prisoners. One of the key points in it is that the scientist behind the technology was designing it for totally different reasons. And then yeah, I'm hoping I'm not giving up too much, but <laughs> higher up decided it would be easier and more profitable to use to hurt people who are prisoners. I love the nuance in that story. And again, I'm trying to not give too much away about the plot line, but <laughs> can you tell us about it and maybe talk about how the interests of money making and capitalism can take over or kind of coerce things into brutality? Uh, absolutely. I think that Culturally, we're so willing to grow technologically in terms of our technological potential and power because we think of it as easy to monetize, but we're much slower, I feel, to grow our moral, ethical, um, I don't know, appreciation for what is okay, what's acceptable. It's almost like we have to make money off the horrible thing first. And then after years and years of doing that terrible thing, we decide, actually, that was not okay. Um, I think that I was just recently watching a video by a, a great YouTuber named Jacob Geller. And he made a video about the um, the false evolution of the death penalty and how, you know, they used to quarter people with horses and four horses put in different ways. And then they're like, wait, that's really inhumane. And then they get, have the gallows. And then like, you know what? That's actually really hu inhumane. And then they have the gas chamber, even in America, even after the World War II. We're like, uh, you know what? That's actually not okay. And then we have the uh, um, electric chair. And now we're starting to look at the electric chair as something archaic and wrong. And then we have, you know, we have these, 
it's like people just are super unwilling to um, see that maybe it's actually just the killing that's wrong. Maybe it's the violence that's wrong. So I went to that tangent. What was the question again? <laughs> I mean, that was a perfect tangent. It is the violence that's wrong, right? I mean, it is brutal to strap someone to four horses and quote unquote quarter them. And it's just as brutal to, to inject them with a lethal injection. Right. The the question going back to it was like how sometimes the interest of capitalism or the ah. interest of making money can yeah. coerce things toward violence. Right. So we have so much like fervor to make money that people will develop technologies to um, solve problems. But because the moral ethical sort of piece is like lagging behind, it seems always very quickly, those advancements can be used uh, and leveraged to cause harm. And it can be used and leveraged against people. I remember when 3D printing came out, I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. Then within two seconds, they were like, let's make guns. I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, you can make anything in the whole world. And the first thing you thought oh. was like, let's make a gun. I was like, okay, <laughs> I guess. I was thinking like, I don't know, like a cool chair. <laughs> they were like, <laughs> and so, yeah, I feel like people are really willing to make things that make money. And there's a lot of money to be made in the control of people because right now we live in a country where control, force, power, and death are the rules. And for me to answer your question earlier on, I think abolition is a world where communities and compassion is like the rule. So I'm super excited to see if the creativity in your writing of Chain Gang All-Stars says anything. I'm excited to see what the 3D printed chair that you design is going to look like. <laughs> it would have no guns attached to it. <laughs> That's a good promise to make. Let's hope it stays that way whenever someone buys it off you, right? Um, There'll be no guns. My 3D printed chair. So your book doesn't say when the story takes place exactly. It's clearly in the future. Yeah. As as a reader, I went back and forth as I was reading, and then landed an idea that it's in the near future, maybe yep. 15 years away. When does the book take place for you? Same thing. Uh, pretty near future. I think that uh, I let go of thinking that there's a bottom, so to speak, in terms of like morally reprehensible things that can happen and be accepted in this country or abroad. You know, the only thing that makes me say it's even that long is um, technology stuff, not cultural things. I, I, I always say it's an imagined future, but I mean like a 15, 20, 30 year future, maybe in the far end. Okay, and just to be clear, we are talking about black people in the future. Do you consider yourself an Afrofuturist? So whether it's Afrofuturism, speculative nature, sci-fi, I'm so hesitant to give myself any of the labels. But that said, <laughs> I absolutely love the idea that I'm an Afrofuturist. My guy, Sean Theodore, he also coined the term um, Afro mythology, and I love that as well. Mm. Sean Theodore, mm -hmm. the photographer, Afro mythology. I want to say is the term closing. I, I I love that idea and I consider myself in that space. Um, I mean, anything that has black in it, you know, I'm rocking with it. And um, but I do think it's it is important, as you said, to imagine black people in the future. In in writing worlds, you get a lot of tote bags. And my favorite one ever just says, There are black people in the future. Mm, that's right. <laughs> so going back to the politics a little bit, I I guess like a lot of the work of abolition is to imagine a future where policing and imprisonment don't exist, right? Yeah. That's not at all what you did in this book. Um, yeah. The book is brutal. And on the to be honest, like on the days where I'm pessimistic about the future, which is pretty common, 
I don't quite go so far as to imagine a reality show prisoner gladiator deathmatch. Um, But that said, as I was reading the book, I didn't think of the idea as entirely unrealistic or far-fetched. I'm wondering about your intention for you. I've seen your book reviewed as a satire. Do you think of it as a satire? Do you think of it as a pessimistic future that's truly rooted in reality? So I think of, um, and I know that, again, satire, even though, again, it's a very, like, easy, I'm not, I know I write in a satirical mode, but it's just not a thing I think of for myself. It's another one of those ideas or labels that I sort of accept gladly, but haven't really, don't think about in the process of doing. But I, I feel that one of my, like, jobs or powers as a writer is to imagine basically extrapolating from the moral ethical place we're at now, like, up like just okay we're on this line and just keep going and i usually arrive at places like chain gang all-stars but what i'm hoping happens and sometimes i like to be pretty extreme Mm. because what i'm hoping happens is that the reader and a twofold kind of method one by having the exercise of imagining the world with me has like practiced the act of imagining a world right and number two, hopefully, like the goodness in them or, or just like the idea that this is brutal will spur uh, imagining against it, imagining in the other way. It's like, you know, say if it's absolute value, maybe, okay, I'm at this negative 10. What is, then it's okay. So if that's right, then what does positive 10 look like? That's really what I'm hoping happens. I hope that uh, that happens as well as I hope that it, or my, I hope that the way I write, especially while grounding some things in the actual literal truth of our present reminds us that someone had to imagine this too. This is not natural. The thing we have right now was imagined by people. So if we could imagine better, maybe we could do something a lot better. So I later on, I am going to ima- ask you to imagine like, if this is negative 10, what is positive 10? But yeah. first I want to talk about some of your inspirations. The book is sandwiched between your forward and your afterward um, that both frame the book in your own politics and both give credit to some of the black women who've been incredible leaders in the abolitionist movement. I'm wondering if you can talk about a little bit more about your own political development and the role that these black women abolitionists have played. Yeah, they're huge for me. I think you're talking about Angela Davis, Ruth Wilson Gilmore. um, How do I pronounce her first name? Mariame Kaba. Uh, Those are some people who are huge for me. And what I like about them is... I mean, especially like take, take, take someone like Ruth Wilson Gilmore. She's an academic academic. It's not like she doesn't like she's not pulling punches. She's giving you empirical facts. Sometimes that part of it's part of my brain is like when I say I want to make sure I'm abolitionist. She's she's presenting these empirical facts. Also, while these moral ideas, too. But she was saying like this thing is not working. Also, here's the sort of basis for how this even happened and how this even came to be. And it, it's recontextualizing our reality for me in a way that's like, oh, this is like a plan that someone had that was economic, you know? So that's huge. Um, people like Angela, it's like, you know, that like we know her history and she's this fighter and she's been involved in so many movements and all this heart she still has. All this, again, ground, she's has become like a true academic in the sense that, you know, then the whole PhD thing. But like also... So there's like a, there's like a I guess empirical grounding and like real research. All these people that's, that's the case for all these people I, I just mentioned, but also it's like a, a practical analysis of the of the issue of prisons and discovering that they are in fact obsolete obsolete as you know the book says 
our prison is obsolete. Spoiler right. alert. Um, and so, and then same thing with when we do this till we free us, talking, that one's cool because like that, that particular book anyways, all these different avenues and intersectionalities, which I think the Bible tries to do as well, of the, of the issue of carceral thinking and prisons and all the different ways it affects us, uh, help break it down for me in this way that felt very human and very digestible. And so it was a, there's a lot of different ways to answer your question that they sort of grew my thinking. And again, they're kind of the ones who want to say like their research, like reading them, I'm like, okay, this is not some like pie in the sky idea. Cause sometimes you kind of feel like, I don't know, do I hang out with too many poets or something? Am I just, no. <laughs> and it's like, no, this is like real, this is real and we can do better. And so they helped me a lot with that. I'm in conversation with Nana Kwame Ajebrenya about his new book, Chain Gang All-Stars. I'm going to move us a little bit to a question that's multi-layered and kind of a stretch. So yeah. please bear with me. Yeah. Um, one of the guests we've had on this show is Saidia Hartman. Who oh, sweet. A... The genius. Oh, great. I'm glad you're familiar. So she is an archivist and historical nonfiction writer whose most well-known book is called Scenes of Subjection. We had her on to uh, join us on the 25th anniversary of her book that got a reproduction print. Um, one idea that she offers as a Black archivist, and I hope I'm not butchering this, I'm going to do my best, is that because one of the many violent aspects of slavery included not allowing people who were enslaved to learn to read and write yeah that we don't have some of the actual stories of that historical experience yeah right that a lot of the stories of people who were enslaved are not able to be properly archived because most of those folks couldn't write mm. and because of that it's important to actually fill in some of the blanks with details mm -hmm. that we think could be true so one of the things Saidia hartman suggests is that we kind of fill in those blanks, even though sometimes it, it adds elements that aren't 100% there, that it's more important to have full and rich stories of the past, even if some of those details have to be imagined, yeah. than only to have the elements of it that literate, and that means mostly white people, wrote down. Yeah. Yes. So your book is not about the past. This is why this is a stretch. Yeah. Your book is about the future, and it is uh essentially fully fictional book um but i'm wondering what is your intention in writing a book that paints a brutal picture of how the prison industrial complex developed we talked about that a little bit earlier and in that spirit of filling in the blanks that we can't know exactly about the past what can we learn from filling in blanks that we don't know yet about the future that's such a smart question. I, don't, I you 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 added a lot of qualifiers, but I think that's a really good question, and it's really important. Um, like how, to, uh, like I I've done a one time when I was in South Africa, um, I did a film with Sadia Hartman, and I remember her talking about how she writes from the perspective of people in the past a lot, and even though she's writing sort of nonfiction, be like almost like this creative nonfiction from the past's perspective, and I I remember feeling like. You have to be really smart and capable and well-researched to do that, which of course she is. And I felt, I remember thinking like, ah, oh, I feel like that would be scary for me, which is part of why I think I like the future space, actually, um, mm -hmm. for that reason. But that said, I was, it's, a, it's a really smart question because for me, I like to 
imagining the future blanks that don't exist in some ways is cool for me because I get to interrogate the system as it is and be like, where are you drawing your line? Because I hope and I believe that most people will say the situation I'm presenting is completely unethical. And I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. if that's true, then how come this, which you already are doing, or this thing that's a little bit before me? It's like you have this arbit we have these arbitrary ideas about when it's okay and when it's not. And I'm and, and for me, the the blank I get to present in the future is like there's gonna be a time where someone presents this like exact idea that I'm presenting or something analogous to it. And you're going to be arguing with it because you haven't adopted a sort of more fundamental idea that these people's humanity is not for sale. I think as recently as like, I don't know, last month I was seeing them talking about um, um, convicted people on the inside, giving up organs to get a lesser sentence. And it's like, that's a gut punch right there. Yeah. And this is real. This is not from my book or anything. And so, you know what I'm saying? So if, so to me, when I when I get to work in this like future space, I get to put these like little stop markers. Like, okay, you said this, but what about this then? Oh, this this disgusts you, <laughs> you know? Um, this th- and this one I could say. And what's also cool, I guess, about the future space is it gets a little bit depersonalized. Or I could I could like almost like children horse my way into like the conversation because some some people when they say say even bring up slavery or any moment they're automatically gonna like tense up or fold up or their walls go up or something because they're ignorant or racist or whatever, but still. And for me, it's like, no, I'm talking about the future. This is a place of possibility. And I'm still getting to that same, I I still get to speak to those same truths, but without that sort of knee jerk um, defensiveness that kind of pops up. So for me, uh, I think we're, I think it's, I mean, I absolutely love Cynthia Hartman. I think she's like a treasure. Um, And, someone I look up to a lot actually, mm. but uh, the, 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 for me, I feel like I get to fill in this blank of like, I know that if unchecked, they will try to do this. So I like to have a stake in the ground here where um, it's agreed upon to be completely abhorrent. And then also as you do the extrapolations, you say, Oh wait, this is right. Actually in line with what we're doing, just that the scale has increased, not the type of, um, Sort of like if it was a linear progression, it's not like the the angles and change. It's just that we continue this angle over many years or something. And I said we would come back to it earlier when when you first brought it up. But you know, one of the things that as an artist we get to, as an abolitionist and an artist, we get to do when we're creating our our work, especially in in the fiction space, and as you described in the future space, we can imagine a different and more liberated world. Your book, Chain Gang All-Stars, maybe brings us to the negative 10. If that's the negative 10, you suggested that it could give a reader the idea of what positive 10 could be. But I want to ask you, if Chain Gang All-Stars is your negative 10, yeah. what is your positive 10? I love it. I'm glad you gave me a little bit of time in the background to my subconscious think about this. Um, well, no, first of all, and again, this is something like from a lot of abolitionists, but I think I remember Ruth Wilson Gilmore saying it first, in my mind anyways, like a lot of people think of abolition, they think, you know, snap your fingers and taking things away. When I think of abolition, I think about adding things mostly. And so um, we know for sure that most people that are incarcerated suffer from um, mental health problems. Uh, My positive 10 has a completely reimagined approach to the reality of mental health issues. And 
billions and billions of dollars in our time and investment are, I mean, I mean, if I really get to my positive 10, the idea of dollars and everything is even totally different. So I can't get too into it, but <laughs> maybe positive nine. <laughs> yeah, let's go to positive nine because I don't even know if money is even the same thing in my positive 10. But clear positive eight, uh, our approach to mental health is totally, totally different. Uh, we are odd. We're, we're thinking even if someone has harmed someone, that there's a great chance that they are suffering too. And we try to, even as, even if there was a chance that we had to very periodically remove them from the rest of society, it was done. So considering them as a human that we feel compassion over and not with some arbitrary timestamp attached to that, uh, separation. So we add uh, sort of comprehensive fundamental reimagining of our attitude towards mental health. The other high marker for um, incarceration, we'd have a comprehensive reimagining of our attitude towards drug abuse and addiction. The, cur- the current system totally, again, destroys our ability to respond compassionately to these issues because we don't have to because you just throw someone in the hole. Now I'm saying we actually engage these actual issues, which incarceration and carceral thinking is actually a huge block for us to actually engage in, literally in terms of our mind's eye, but also more literally in terms of like dollars that are allocated to issues, we have a totally comprehensive reimagining of how we speak about speak about um, the drug addicted, how we try to engage people who are suffering from that disease, and we again we keep we think about them compassionately. It would also again these are broad strokes pictures, but we know the people who are incarcerated again. You can't think about incarceration without thinking about poverty. Which again, that's why I said the whole dollars thing. We have to like rethink the whole thing, and I do think we do have to, but. We stop criminalizing poverty and homelessness. We stop doing that. We have, again, we have a totally different, comprehensively different approach to those who are impoverished, those who are with are unhoused. We try to engage them compassionately. And again, as a society, we all care. We all think that's an issue. We all know that's one of our, a huge issue. And no one feels super comfortable with someone um, being unhoused, sleeping on the street in the snow. So those are like some of the, those are like the, to me, like the, the, the big ones, they'd be, if you act on any one of those issues, they'd be like a <laughs> huge list of programs and things we would do. But those poverty, drug addiction, mental health, uh, by far, most of the people who are currently incarcerated are affected by some, if not all those things. And so it only makes sense to add community-based programs that help to deal with that actually real issue, as opposed to a non-community-based program, which kidnaps members of the community and throws them in a cage. Well, that positive eight or so is a is a good note that we're going to have to end on because we are out of time. <laughs> Nana, I really enjoyed your book, Chain Gang All-Stars. I hope that more of our folks read it and use the negative 10 that's so beautifully written about here to create that positive let's let's go with positive 10 <laughs> positive 1 million that's right so nana thank you so much for joining us today on law and disorder thank you for the incredible questions uh, that was really a pleasure I, i'm grateful thank you the pleasure is mine nana kwame ajay brenya's brand new book is called chain gang all stars You've been listening to Lawn Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Lawn Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. 
The show was produced and hosted by me, Jesse Strauss. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to hit us up about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by listeners. If you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.